Okay. Um, we'll start out here with a bibliography. Not that I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but some of the better sources here that you can <coughs> to look at here. Um, the ones that are in uh, in the bold font are probably your best sources. I might have put Dolezal also in that as far as a... That's probably one of the newest and best books here on doctrine of God. It's not it's not a whole theology of God, but it's it's a, it's a very helpful book. Feinberg and Frame are the two I use at seminary. So if you want to get more in depth and and uh, probe some of these things a little bit deeper, those are the ones I uh, would recommend for that. Sam Sor- Stam- uh, Sam Storms. At the bottom there, the grandeur of God. I, I thought about making that the uh, reading for the uh, for the class. It's a little bit more devotional. Goes through the attributes in a rather devotional way. It's actually very helpful. What page are we in? We're on page one. Oh, I'm missing page one. Oh, there's no one on it. You don't have page one. Oh, well, I just oh, I everybody else has it. I'm missing something here. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure how that happens. Sam Storms is a helpful one. It's, it's a little more devotional. Same with J.I. Packer. It's a it's a little bit more of a devotional read, uh, but well worth uh, reading. I mean, hopefully we're coming out of here with more than just a rudimentary knowledge of what God is like. Hopefully we can say that we know him better. And I think Packer sort of bridges that gap very well with knowing God. Uh, Piper's book, The Pleasures of God or Desiring God, is another one I would recommend as, a, as one to sort of uh, bring a devotional flavor to this topic. Okay, and then, and then I've got a list of some select materials on key issues, things that come up, kind of questions that you sometimes get asked. Uh, for instance... Yeah, you know, I say the love of God there by D. A. Carson. There's all kinds of questions. As, you know, if God is loving, then why X? This is a very good book that answers that question. Very accessible. A um, couple of books here on the Trinity. Erickson and Lethem are both very good. Um, Feinberg and Sproul both have books on the problem of evil. Feinberg, uh, of course, had a had a wife who was very who was chronically ill and uh, a very very difficult story and, and so he's well equipped uh, to write that book uh, to, to talk about why bad things happen uh, why why God who is a good and holy God will allow such terrible things to happen a couple of th- uh, there's a book on eternity this is it's a topic that uh, will become uh, becomes a really a real challenge for us in this class because it's hard to know exactly God's relationship to time. What did God invent time? Uh, is God bound by time? For some some reason, I, I don't know. It's the way our minds work. It's easy to say that God is outside of space, but it seems really strange for us to say that He's outside of time. Um, but I think whatever you say about one, you have to say about the other, and so that's a it's rather a complex topic. Helm does a really good job with that. Providence of God, that's a great topic there. Um, 
Foreknowledge. Uh, Stephen Roy has a very good book, Holiness of God's Scroll. So all of those are helpful books uh, that deal with specific topics about the doctrine of God if you want to dive deeper or if you get questions. Uh, sometimes those come up in classes and such. People ask you. So those can be some sources to go to. Any thoughts on those? I won't spend a lot of time talking about the bibliography, but I think it's helpful for you to know where to go if you need more. What's open theism? Open theism? Yeah, we'll talk about that. It's the idea that God is not fixed, that he's evolving, that his decree is not uh, you know, set in eternity past, but uh, sort of he's making it up as he goes. Maybe, maybe I'm putting it a little bit too... Uh, maybe I'm prejudicing the argument a little bit, but effectively that's where we're going. A lot of people think that way. And it has become sort of part of an academic discussion as well. And so. God's a pre- uh, progressive? Yes, God is God is a God in process, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, let's start then on our notes. We'll start with the definition of God, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to talk about. Because very, in fact, many people don't even define him. You go to some systematic theologies, there is no definition of God. It's because we're afraid, we're afraid to misrepresent him. We're afraid to define him poorly, and unfortunately, we can't really wrap our hands around him as much as we'd like to. So some don't make a definition at all. So three reasons: man's inability to comprehend God leaves him comp- uh, vulnerable to misrepresenting God or under-representing God. Second one here, this is, this is a, an odd one here. Since God is not material, it's hard to define him. You know, if you're going you know, to describe a dog, for instance, it's easy to do that because there's a, there's a dog, you know, a, a, and, and then... Uh, how you define him is, okay, he's a hairy dog, is he a pointy-nosed dog, is he a big dog, is he a little dog? But you have something to talk about. There's a, there's a dog there. But if you're talking about God, there's, there's nothing there. And so you're, ta- you're throwing adjectives at him, but there's, there's nothing to stick to. And so it's, it's rather difficult to define God. In fact, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about, his attributes are not adjectives but nouns. So, for instance, we say that God is a loving God, and that's an appropriate thing to say. But we can also say that God is love. Okay, um, and I think that can be said of all of His attributes. That God is the His attributes are that which define Him. Um, they're not just adjectives that are stuck onto a a core essence. They are who He is. His attributes make it, make make up what He is, which makes it difficult then to define. And then secondly, uh, thirdly here, since definitions usually are cast in terms of unique qualities, characteristics, capacities, definitions for God tend to be really long. Trying to incorporate all of his attributes, perfections, and actions, and not leaving anything out. So you can see two definitions, at both at different poles. A.H. Strong <coughs> is generally regarded as having the best short definition of, of God here. The infinite and perfect spirit in whom all things have their source, support, and end. You see this fairly routinely, regularly. It pops up all over the place because uh, it's it's sort of taken hold as one of the best definitions. But it doesn't cover everything. And that's that's 
part of the tension we've been talking about. And so the Westminster Confession sort of takes the other tack. It, it tries to throw everything into the definition so you don't leave anything out. It's a good definition, but it's hard to memorize, that's for sure. There is but one, only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, that's a good definition there, but uh, it's a bit long. <laughs> so, for that reason, it's just very difficult to, to come up with a, a good definition. So, uh, with that, we'll leave that behind, and then we're going to try and establish then the fact that God is. Uh, we have to demonstrate, prove, maybe not the best word here, but we, we're, you know, the Bible sort of assumes that God is. You know, that's how it starts, right? In the beginning, God. There's no really attempt here to prove that God exists. So, how do we know that he exists? And there's uh, uh, a lot of debate over the topic. I start here with uh, what I call rational proofs for the existence of God, or a posteriori, that is, after the fact, proofs for the existence of God. So, God is, and how are we going to know that he is? By seeing all the things that he does, all the effects all of the all of the details around that sort of point back to him, and the most res, uh, most recognized set of these proofs comes from Thomas Aquinas. His five ways. Uh, some some will throw those first three together into one, but so so there's three ways or five ways, but we'll just keep it at five. Um, these are the five proofs. One motion. Since all motion is produced by some force external to the thing moved, and since there can be no infinite change of movement, an unmoved mover must exist. So you walk into a room, and there's a pool table in the middle of the room, and you see one of the balls rolling. What do you assume? There's a wind. (laughs) Something something made it. It just doesn't have some... There's no perpetual motion here, so... So somebody must have been in the room and walked out quickly, or the wind, perhaps. There has to be some sort of force that made that move, and then some sort of force made that force move the ball, and so back and back, and so we move back. But then it says, but there can't be an endless stream of motion, and so there must be something at the beginning that started everything moving. Causality is is the same, except not just in the realm of space, but through all cause and effect. Since all events are caused by some entity outside the thing caused, and since there can be no infinite change of cause and effect, there must be a first cause. So there's an unmoved mover, there's a first cause. Contingency. Since all things have a time in which they did not exist, it follows that there is a time in which nothing exists. Okay, so... You know, you look at a person and you say, that person has a mom and dad, and that mom and dad has a mom and dad, and so on and so forth. You keep going back. But it follows that there must have been a time when nothing exists. But if this were the case, 
then nothing would ever have come into being. And so there must be some non-contingent being, uh, a being that doesn't depend on someone else for his own being. So these are the these are all these all sort of go together as one, you can see. Design is another, since all objects without a mind must be the product of a mind, and all objects with a mind must be the product of a greater mind, then there must also be an ultimate designer that exists, sometimes called the teleological argument. Sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes here it references the, the watchmaker mm-hmm. argument. You see a watch in the middle of a the table there, you assume that someone must have designed it, and someone with a, an intelligence greater than the watch itself must have done so, and so you, again, have this idea that there must be something uh, that is has a perfect design that sort of, you know, imagined everything. And then degrees of perfection, which is a little bit of a different one. This is sometimes called the criteriological argument. Since all objects have properties in degrees, and take these properties from a more perfect source, there must be a most perfect being that exists. So, for instance, if you, you know, if you would see a, say there's a, there's a woman, and she's a beautiful woman, and there's another woman who is a more beautiful woman, and you pretty much can come up with characteristics and qualities that would make her such. You, you keep going back and say, there, there's got to be a perfect standard of beauty somewhere. And what is that perfect standard of beauty? What is that most perfect being? Well, it must be God. So these are, these are five arguments that, that have been summoned over the years. Uh, to take, you know, take people from knowing nothing about God to at least assuming that there are there is this being out there that is most perfect, a designer, a non-contingent, unmoved mover and first cause. Okay, so what's the tension with these proofs? Well, theologically. There's really no foundation for their own intelligibility. What is perfection? What is truth? Well, truth is what God is. And what he would say about a given thing, not something that's assigned to him. So truth and beauty and such are theistic by nature. So unsaved people may know something to be true, but only because they already assume that God exists. They also rest on the objectivity and integrity of men. That is, people are looking for God. That people are honestly and and holily looking for God, and so they will take the information they have and assume God. Well, the fact is, Romans 1 tells us that doesn't happen, right? You know, they know God from the creation of the world, and yet what do they do? Well, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Uh, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And even though they know certain things about God, they they actually deny them. So so even though these, these methods might plausibly lead to God, for someone who is looking for him, then the, the, the problem is no one's looking for him. No one's seeking after God. In fact, once we once people find Him, they generally don't want Him. They don't like Him. So, so they're 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 not proof. 
And uh, so, in that sense. But when oh. you say, like, Egyptian society, these same arguments point to gods. Yes, that's your next point. But, exactly. But not the true God. Right. right. That's my number three point, and that's oh. exactly right. Well, I read ahead. No. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> you're, you're tracking with me. There's no eco- mechanism for correctly identifying the correct God. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Scripture tells us that man uniformly changes, exchanges the true God for false ones. And then it lists a number of options that are out there. Deism. Again, I'm not really looking to quiz you on these, but... Uh, these are options that people believe about God. Deism. God sort of the, uh, God, God wound up the universe like a clock and then left. Most of, most of the founding fathers of the good old U.S. of A. weren't Christians in, a, in, a, in the truest of biblical senses. Most of them were deists. They believed in a God, but they believed he sort of wound up the, the universe, established certain laws, and then backed away. Uh, and uh, well, that's that's not what God is. Atheism, of course, is the belief that there is no God, which is a actually there is no such thing as a philosophical atheist. Everyone knows that God exists. Roman one, Romans one says so, right? But nonetheless, there's a lot of people who live as though God doesn't exist. So there's practical atheists out there. So atheism, skepticism. The belief that one can't be sure about the existence of God. He might exist, he might not. Agnosticism. The belief that one can't know if there is a God. Pantheism. The belief that everything is God and God is everything. So that everything that appears is a manifestation of God. Polytheism. Very popular in the ancient world. The belief in many gods oftentimes assigned to different aspects of the universe. Monotheism, which is true, of course, the belief in one God, but which God? Is it, is it the Allah? Is it Yahweh? Is it God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Which, which single God is it? Henotheism, the worship of one God among many, that there's uh, a rivalry among gods, but there's one chief God. Fetishism. This is uh, this is the next two really are something that you find pretty routinely in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. The worship of inanimate objects thought to hold the spirit of a god, and that the Haitian religion as well. Animism that all nature is alive with spirits. So, boy, it's it's just amazing when you go to Africa. They think they they see spirits everywhere. It's kind of funny. I had a we were, we were going through, uh, I was doing a thing on apologetics in Tanzania, and I, I, I normally I teach the class in the West, in, you know, America. And so usually I, I have these categories, and everybody agrees on them. So I, I use this example, okay? If, if you hear, you're, you're, you're sleeping, and you hear a noise downstairs, what do you assume? Well, when I ask that here in, in the states, it's like, okay, there's a burglar, the dog got loose, you know, some, you know, some, you know, some glue gave way, something fell, or, or kids are down there, 
Yeah, I mean, those are those are the options that are out there. But the first thing that came out of their mouth was it's a ghost, <laughs> or or perhaps a witch, one or the other. <laughs> okay, that's not what I was expecting, but yeah. So, but that's because animism, the belief that all nature is alive with spirits, that they're they're everywhere. Then dynamism, this is this is Star Wars here, the belief that there is some sort of all-pervading energy that can be tapped either for good or for evil. Again, that's an Eastern kind of approach. But I think there's a lot of people who think of those terms. Yeah. It's like uh, Oprah's, uh, what's it called, The Secret or whatever? I think that she teaches and came out with a book. It's oh, really? called The Secret. It sounds more like Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm not up on Oprah these days, but oh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> So, so there's some logical inadequacies. These don't actually prove this God. And then logically, there's some uh, uh, problems too. In addition to the theological ones, there's logical ones. The proofs don't lead logically to God, but rather to endless regress. And, and, and this is what you often find in, in, uh, in scientific studies of origins, for instance, here in, in, in Western academia. So everything has a cause, right? So this must be caused by this, must be caused by this, must be caused by this. And what's the conclusion? Well, it just keeps going. Endless regress. So uh, so rather than saying, okay, there's some point at which it all started, one, one starting point or one maker that started it all, the, the idea is that time and space pretty much are eternal, and they just extend back and back and back and back. In fact, that's, I think, one of the most most uh, nefarious strategies that Satan uses to distance us from God. You know, it's like, oh, there's just an endless regress, and, and the, the more distance between you put yourself between you and God, the less significant he, mean, he seems to be to us, because he's so far away. Secondly, the proofs don't lead thinkers to a single necessary God. Could be a lot of gods. Something greater than the subject. There could be ten or fifteen gods. The proofs assert no more than a probable existence of God, and even that is dubious. Why, why do we jump? Yeah, I, there's, a, there's a philosophical issue here. Yeah, um, yeah I had a, had a marker board here, but yeah, I, I, I at the if you think of the world, you know, here's a here's a line here. Down here is what we might call Aristotelianism or the scientific scientific method. This is where it's the realm of stuff. Okay. The, it's sometimes a phenomenal realm, as opposed to the noumenal. This is the realm of the mind. This is spirit, this is matter, this is mind, uh, this is this is this is the realm of 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 the real, where there's idealizations of the real, and so Aristotle and really the scientific method said this is all that's real. Okay, down here, where Plato said the only thing is real is what's up here. Okay, that was the big that was the big date, debate between them. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. But the the, the the tension is if you're an Aristotelian in the bottom bottom half of this, and you believe in the scientific method. There's really no reason for you ever to jump across the ditch to the other side. Okay, you pretty much eliminated that. 
And so the scientific method pressed to its logical end eliminates the prospect of God. Scientific method as practiced. I'm not saying that science is bad here or somehow tainted, but the scientific method as it stands, if it doesn't accommodate the existence of God from the start, then it's never going to get you there. There's no reason for you to to assume that there is some sort of a realm out there beyond what we see uh, that that sort of runs everything. So that's why I say here the proofs really uh, don't, uh, they, they at best assert a probable God, and perhaps not even that. Okay, so, and then like like on unto that it's logically fallacious to argue from the finite to the infinite that requires a rash an irrational leap of faith so if i walk into the room and i see a billiard ball rolling across the table my first thought isn't ah god must have moved that because i mean if we're living in this realm down here so no Either another ball hit it, or a cue stick hit it, and somebody carrying a cue stick made that made that happen, and he walked out of the room. And so, I I, I wouldn't automatically or even ever move to the prospect that oh God did it. That that there is no that's a that's a, a logical leap, a leap of faith as it were, uh, to 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 go from the material realm to the immaterial. There's no, there's no connection between the two, uh, in with the pure scientific methods. Does that make sense? Does that follow? So all of this to say that these proofs of God after the fact, none of them really point uh, natively uh, to God. It's it's really impossible to convince anyone who doesn't already believe that God exists that God exists by using these kinds of methods. Does that follow? There are other approaches to the proof of God. Uh, we'll call them a priori proofs, or proofs before the fact. They're rarer, you don't, you don't, because they're, they're a little bit more philosophical, a little bit harder to discern. These are arguments for the existence of God from a general principle to necessary effects. For example, here, on some the 8th century, proposed what he called the ontological argument that God must exist in reality because no thought is possible without first theorizing his existence. You know, so it's, it's, it's a fairly complex argument here. Um, we wouldn't even conceive of God if he didn't, if he didn't exist in the first place. Okay? Uh, the fact that we're even considering the prospect of God is so because not because of any sort of data around us, but because we already have assumed it. Okay, A. Strong, Baptist theologian, argued for a first truth or a rational intuition of God that must be assumed in order to make any observation or reflection possible. Okay, so in order for us even to have thoughts about God or about anything. We have to assume that there's something that ties it all together. So the idea is, you know, people assume that God exists, and that's why they think he does. Uh, uh, if, if it weren't for the fact that God had put himself in the minds of people, they would never even consider the prospect of his existence. 
Then there's also the argument from the impossibility of the contrary. That is, we can't imagine a world in which God isn't. These are better proofs. They're correct so far as they go, but they, again, don't identify which transcendent God we're talking about, apart from revelation and scripture. Even a transcendental argument loses its force for philosophy and systematic theology about, without the Bible. So while it's true that God has put eternity in our hearts, so Job says, that we all know that there is a God, uh, the fact is we've so distorted it that to find to come up with the correct God is very difficult unless unless you get the revelation that he has given to you about that God in order to find him. Okay? Which leads us then to how do we know God? How do we know that God is? We already said that uh, the, 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 the fact of God is assumed in the Bible. It starts both Testaments, right? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's just sort of this assumption uh, that the biblical writers just assume that everybody knows that God exists. But uh, we can go to Romans 1 to get ourselves a little bit uh, uh, a little bit com- more complete understanding of what this is. Romans 1, 18 to 25. I have it written out there for you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Because, here it is, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. From the creation of the world, there's a debate as to that word there, is, is it a temporal thing since the creation of the world or from, as, as a result of, the creation of the world? And I think it's the latter, actually. So as a result of, for from the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, specifically his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen. There's a paradox, right? We can see him, even though he can't be seen, right? Being understood by what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged this God, the glory of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Okay, We talked about this uh, last time. You know, how do you know? So remember we talked about that, how you know somebody when you go to the airport? Remember we had that discussion here last last time? If you, you have to go to, to the airport and pick somebody up, how do you know that you've got the right person? Okay, And... You know, the first, the first thing we automatically think is, okay, we've got to get a description of the person, what they're wearing, what they're carrying, you know, put a little sign with their name, Jimmy, and, you know, see somebody that looks like you might be the right person. <laughs> uh, nope, that's not Jimmy. Uh, so that's, that's what we call the discursive approach, okay? We know that person uh, 
by description. Okay. There's another approach here, which we might say by intuition. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that think that this is how you know God. You just sort of get this buzz. There's some sort of a there's some sort of a feeling that you have. I wouldn't recommend you go to the airport to find someone that way. It's not very <laughs> effective. Although, like I say, I think a lot of people think that's how you find God. You just you just you just sort of have this existential moment and you find it. The other way, and the one that we perhaps overlook because it's so simple and so obvious to us, is that we know someone by recognizing them. Okay, so if I went to pick up my wife at the airport, I wouldn't I wouldn't be dependent on knowing what she's going to be wearing or what she'd be carrying or you know hold up a little card with Heather. I know her already. I recognize her because I have a prior knowledge. And all of these sort of come together here when we're describing God. Look at look at this. The knowledge of God is intuited apart from objective input. So it's a category of knowledge common to all people. And and uh, and what does Paul say to this? Well, it's not just something that's intuited. It's something that's seen in what is created. Okay, so the uh, we could we could we could go back to uh, Psalm 19, right, and say the same thing. The heavens declare the glories of glory of God, um, but then it says you, we we hear it, we he, we hear the the voice of creation, all in concert talking about God. But then the next word is there is no language, there is no voice. It's not actually heard. So again, we got the same paradox. Here, here we here. It's the other. It's not just sound; it's sight. Okay, he's invisible, but we see him. And in the in, in Psalm, he's can't be heard. There is no voice, but we hear it. Okay, so so how is that? And I think that just really comes together to this this whole, whole idea of of, of of recognitive knowledge. Let's let's come to this. Some would say that the knowledge of God is wholly discursive. We simply deduce and construct God according to some sort of a natural theology. But Paul indicates that the knowledge of God is immediately plain and clear. It's actually the entrance of our reason that actually distorts what is known. Okay, So once we start thinking about what we know about God, we actually start distorting it. So the conclusion is that God is known through cognition. What do I mean by that? Well, we were made in the image of God, and we immediately recognize the voice of God in his various revelations. We recognize him by what we see and what we hear. We know him already. And I think then, when we hear his voice and see his his words in Scripture, we, we say, yeah, you know, I, I know this God. I'm already acquainted with him. And so that seems to be the, the, the implication here, and it's an important one for us, particularly when we're sharing the gospel, is that people already know this God. They are already acquainted with him. And if they're already acquainted with him, you don't really need to prove him. Just simply remind them of him. And like I said, I, I, I never would uh, criticize someone who simply opens their Bible and starts to explain the gospel. Uh, it seems foolish, right? 
And that isn't that the point of First Corinthians one? It's foolish to talk about the cross. It's it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness, and yet it's effective. There's a power in it. Why? Well, because when people hear the voice of God, they recognize it. And they know what he's saying. And by God's grace, with his regenerating impulse, they'll respond properly to it. So that's how we know that God exists. And it may may seem a little bit, I don't, I don't know when you're when it comes to the end of this, whether what you're thinking about that is, that seems a little thin perhaps. Uh, but actually, I think it's the strongest foundation that we can have. Uh, to know that God is. Uh, thoughts on that? Comments? You're saying because we're made in the image of God. Yeah. Yes, I believe that. And so the knowledge of God is rational. It's not existential. It's not just some sort of a... It's, you know, it's, it's a rational knowledge. It's universal. It's necessary. Everyone knows that he is, and it's true and accurate. So far as it's unadulterated by depravity, by our human reasoning, the knowledge we have of God is actually pure. So in view of the preceding, the Bible does not labor to prove that God is in some sort of an argumentative fashion. Instead, it begins and ends with the unproven assertion and assumption that God is. It simply declares to men what he already knows, that God exists, and therefore God speaks. So that's uh, what—that's how we know who God is. So how is it that God reveals himself? We've already looked at some of these things already in, in Romans and in, in uh, Psalm 19 and such. Uh, that, and that really makes the very first, first of our points here. But we've actually got, a, I think, about seven items here, seven ways that God makes himself known to us, and we'll conclude with the two most important being Jesus Christ and the scriptures. Uh, But before we even get there, we know him already. The material creation, we've already seen this, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Romans 1, what we just read here, from the creation of the world, we know that he's powerful, he's divine, He's eternal, so that men are without excuse. Acts 14 speaks to this as well. God has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, and by providing you with plenty of food and filling your hearts with joy. How do we know that God is? Well, because God provides for us. He's kind to us. Uh, these are these are these are ways that we ought to know. In fact, the kindness of God should lead men to repentance, but uh, it rarely does because men are not thankful, uh, and that's the point of Romans one. They were not thankful, and so they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I, I have a Thanksgiving message uh, that uh, that, I, that I sometimes give at Thanksgiving time, and that, that that the primary sin, the first sin of mankind, is not eating an apple. It's not being thankful. Uh, they, they did not acknowledge God, or were the, nor were they thankful, but they wanted more. Okay, And because they wanted more, more than what God gave to them, that is that was the root of their primary sin. They weren't thankful. And we can, there's other passages that teach this. Now, there are some limitations to this, and we're going to see limitations to every one of these. 
but fewer as we work along here, hopefully. Although the revelation of God in the material realm is accessible to all, it's actually welcomed by no one because of depravity. Romans 1 says that wicked men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, exchange the truth for a lie. And 1 Corinthians one twenty one, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. They should have. They didn't. Secondly here, another tension we have here is the revelation of God in the material creation is obscured by the problem of evil. And so we say, yes, you know, God is kind. He has not left himself, with himself without witness. He's given to us rain and sun, and, and so we uh, have food, and so we're filled with joy. And then we go down to North Carolina, and we say, hey, they got a little bit too much of that water. And it's not really contributing very much to their joy right now. So, so the, the occlusion here of sin, uh, sin has brought uh, things into this universe that make us think, perhaps, that God isn't so kind, that maybe God isn't a good God. Uh, now, it's ultimately not because of him. It's ultimately because of us, not because there's, not because there's some specific sin of the North Carolina people. Uh, but in general, sin is the cause of all evil in the universe, ultimately. <coughs> and so depravity uh, uh, occludes this picture we have of God. So the fall has introduced all sorts of disease, corruption, natural disasters into the material realm, which cause men to think of God as cruel and arbitrary, when in fact they're really seeing the effects of their own sin. Now again, not individual sin, but sin generally. Remember in John 9, 3, when there's a man born blind? And so the question was, who sinned, this man or his parents? And the answer is, well, it's not really a specific sin of either of these people. Okay, And he said, ultimately, the reason that this man was born blind is so that he could manifest my glory. Um, and so, but, but here... Why was that necessary? Because people weren't going to believe unless they saw God reach into the space-time continuum and correct things. And that's often the that's often what we see in the miracles of Jesus Christ. Uh, a, you know, iterative corrections, mini corrections of little things that are wrong in the universe, um, sort of demonstrating that He is in fact God. But uh, the conclusion that these people had was this: this guy must have sinned, or else his parents had sinned, because because of that. And, and God says, "Well, no, it's sin in general, but uh, but it's it's not because of them specifically." Another reason this is a this is limited is because the uh, material creation gives an incomplete picture of God. It can't, for instance, lead anyone to salvation because it doesn't inform men of God's redemptive nature, person of Christ, the necessity of faith and repentance. Its most visible function, in fact, is to leave men without excuse, and that's the conclusion that we see in Romans 1. Uh, it does not, you know, you can't look at the sky and and say, oh, yeah, you know, look at the constellations and see if it all teaches sort of this gospel story here. No, no it doesn't. Some people have attempted to say that, but it's, it's simply not true. They're just stars. 
Um, and so, so there is no the, the gospel can't be found in the stars. Gospel can't be find found looking into in a microscope. We find some very interesting things about God, magnificent things about God, but they're limited in, in, in scope. We don't we don't know some of the most important things that we need to know by simply looking at creation. It's it's a limited knowledge of God that we have. Okay, so while this is a very helpful way of seeing God, it's an incomplete way. <clears throat> Same thing is true with our look within, our constitution and our conscience. Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. We are made in the image of God. And, you know, we, we can talk about what the image of God is, but certainly what we, what we are going to conclude is that there's some sort of resemblance between us and God, either in our functions, our essence. We, we resemble God in some way. And so if we really want to know something about God, we can look within and we find something about God and fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, and you know the, we're going to talk about the functions of personality that are shared by all persons in the image of God. These are the things that we can look at and say, this this is the way God is because we are this way. <clears throat> uh, Romans two again. Uh, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they become a law for themselves, even though they do not have a law, since they show the requirement of the law written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing and defending them. So not only do we look within and see features of God in ourselves, we actually see this moral standard that is implanted upon our very hearts, so that we know what is right and wrong. We know that God's an ethical God. We know that he's a moral God. So what Romans says, even though these people know that these things are wrong, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who do. So so we know something just by the, the, the twinges and pangs of conscience that come up. They tell us, they alternate, acu- alternately accuse us or defend us. You're doing something wrong, you're doing something right. And so we learn something about the ethical nature of, of God uh, from, from ourselves. But if, but if we want to look at the limitations, here's depravity again, and just screaming at us. Uh, what, what are the tensions here? Well, we misuse the capacities of the divine image and lack the attendant perfections. Okay, and then that's sort of... Uh, we, we sort of need to define what the image of God is here. Um, the image of God is the sum total of our, rela- of, our, of, our, of our similarities that we have with God. Uh, but it's not... We shouldn't think of that in terms of perfection. Um, this is uh, something John Murray talks about, that the image of God has to do with the capacities that we have. I think we talked about this a little bit last semester with interpretation, how that God created us as linguistic beings, okay? And so uh, we, have, we, have, we natively have this capacity for language. This is not something that we developed, but rather it's something that God made man, God made Adam a speaking person uh, because he wanted to speak with him. And then there's a number of different capacities, a capacity for morality, a capacity for worship, 
and we could we can we could list a number of these capacities that we have, but what and and those things persist. You know, we we find, for instance, in uh, Genesis nine, that we cannot curse each other because we can't we cannot kill each other because we're in the image of God. James three says that we cannot curse each other because we're in the image of God. We find that we're still in the image of God. Okay, we still have these functional resemblances to God, but we don't have what we might call the moral perfections that God has. Uh, and so what we tend to do is misuse those capacities that we have and so misrepresent God. And again, the problem of evil is there. The majesty and beauty of God's creative genius in creating man is just always occluded by the fact that we are evil people. We, we misuse what God has given to us. And then even things like our conscience can become seared through habitual disregard. You know, 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about our, our consciences being seared as with a hot iron. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the pre-programming which, with which we came that tells us what's right and what's wrong actually can, you know, that the code can be rewritten, as it were. I can use a, we have a much more modern example here. But the code can be rewritten so that your, actually, your conscience actually misspeaks. Uh, and so you, you have, you know, you, you, you listen on the news and you find out that the people who are opposed to abortion are really the bad guys. They hate women. It's like, wait a minute. How did that happen? Well, somebody rewrote the, rewrote the code uh, in their conscience and they, and, they, and they just pressed it and pressed it and pressed it until they believed it themselves. And now they're trying to convince other people that it's true. And actually it's working. Their consciences have been rewritten. It can be weakened by false information. That's the uh, uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 where, where the weak Christians actually thought it was wrong to eat meat. And Paul says, you know, these people are wrong. Uh, you can eat meat. God says you can eat meat. It says there in Genesis 9, you can eat meat. It says there in Acts when Peter had that Vision with the sheep coming down. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. No, I can't. No. If I say you can eat, God says, you can eat. So we know that it's okay to eat meat. And yet there were some people in Corinth who probably because of either an overreaction uh, to to their previous life of, of idolatry or perhaps perhaps some, some other uh, factor... They, they had come to the conclusion that they shouldn't be eating meat at, at all. It would be a sin to eat meat. And, and Paul's response is, okay, your consciences are weakened. That is, they've been misinformed. And so his goal then is to you know, correct them, but it's, it's not something that has to be done immediately. Uh, those, those people, if they think it's wrong, okay, they shouldn't eat then because they shouldn't knowingly sin. Uh, nonetheless, that's a problem. They shouldn't be thinking this way. And so it's a, so, so again, it, 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 we see that we have a conscience, we have, uh, we have capacities as humans that should point us to God, but because of our own abuse of those things, uh, we, we actually have a very cloudy picture of what God is like. that makes sense? We also have direct revelation which is a 
pretty basic way of, uh, of, of hearing about God. The words God said and its equivalent appear in the Old Testament 3,000 times. Most of them probably reflect an audible voice, sometimes perhaps a vision, um, but uh, most of them I would think would in- involve some sort of an audible voice. They heard the voice of God. This is a great source of revelation, but as we find out, it was only partial. Hebrews 1.1 says that God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets. So portions and pieces of God's message come to them by direct revelation. But, as we know, much of this revelation was lost. Much of what God said was never recorded. Some of it was in the, in the Bible, but much of it wasn't. God, God had long conversations with Moses, 40 days up there on the mountain. What did he say? <clears throat> I have no idea. None of us do. Uh, but there must have been a lot of conversation that was going on, but we don't have it. Then we also have things like the existence of ancient Near Eastern traditions that reflect aberrations or, or distortions of what the Bible says. It's, I, I find it rather fascinating that uh, almost every ancient uh, ancient uh, civilization that has some sort of a record of how they came into existence, almost every single one of them has a flood narrative, a flood story. And and you say, well, why is that? Well, because there was a flood, okay? <laughs> but what happened? Well, they didn't like the, the Noah story, and so it became a Gilgamesh story, so or or someone else. And so each each one of these of these societies and cultures, you know, sort of spun their own version of the flood story uh, so that it would make their people look like the most important ones. And so and so so we have these stories that tell us something about God, but they've been distorted. And so these these myths have developed there's a kernel of truth there. There was a flood. And there was somebody who survived the flood. Those things are you know, that's that's common in every one of the stories, but that's where the commonality ends. And then the stories develop much differently, and so we have revelation here that, that that God gives to us, but it's distorted over the years. We also find that this information, direct revelation, has never been available to all. We're going to argue here that God no longer speaks to men today. But even when God did communicate with men with direct revelation, it was very spotty. He didn't. I think we sometimes have this idea that God was talking to everybody all the time in the Old Testament, but I don't think that was the case. It was actually somewhat rare from the specific people. And so this idea of direct revelation as a source of knowledge about God is very limited in scope, and not very many people get it. So, it's it's an evidence of God's existence, a revelation of God, but it's limited. Even more limited, but perhaps more spectacular, are his mighty acts. Exodus 5, you know, Pharaoh asks this question here. Uh, you know, Moses says, 
God has said, Yahweh has said, let my people go. And what's Pharaoh's response? Who is this God? I don't know this God. I've got ten gods over here. These ten uh, Egyptian gods. I don't know your God. I don't. I don't acknowledge him. I don't recognize him. And so, and so, the the whole the the, the next the next ten chapters seem to be uh, designed to specifically answer that question: Who is this God? And one by one, the ten plagues take on ten of the Egyptian deities and demonstrate that the true and living God, Yahweh, has authority over each one of them and can render them inert. Um, and it's just a fascinating study. And then what's, what's the conclusion in chapter 10? Now I know. Now I know that there is a God in, in Israel and he is, he, is, he is above all gods. Okay, so a, gra- a grand display of who God is uh, with these mighty acts, these, uh, these, these plagues. Second Kings five fifteen, Naaman, remember him? He had leprosy, and uh, he's trying to get rid of this leprosy. And he goes to Elisha and says, "How can I do it? You, know, you have to go down to the River Jordan." He said, "I don't like the River Jordan. It's a dirty river. I'll go back to my rivers." And Elisha said, "That's not going to work." And I remember that little girl persuades uh, persuades. Uh, uh, Naaman to, to go ahead and do this. He goes down six times, seventh time he comes out and he's whole. And what's his what's his response? Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Okay, so mighty acts prove who God is. And there's a lot of a lot of these. I mean, much of the Old Testament is given over to us. So what are the limitations there? Oh, again, they're spectacular. But they are really one of the most localized and inefficient means for revealing God. Revelation was accessible only to those who saw the mighty acts or who heard about them. Furthermore, God's mighty acts and providence always need an infallible interpreter uh, or else people misinterpret them. So, for instance, in John 12, uh, when the cloud comes down and the voice of God speaks... The people thought they heard thunder or perhaps the voice of an angel. <coughs> when Paul and Barnabas uh, perform all these miracles, when they, when they uh, uh, move into Ephesus, they're interpreted as the Roman gods coming down. And so there's a, there's a hollering. They holler about great as Diana, the Ephesians, because here are some com- competitor gods who come down. Well, no, no, that's, that's not the point. No, we're not, we're not that. Apart from Genesis 6, the significance of the Genesis flood is lost. I mean, we would look at the flood and say God is a a terrible God. He's a harsh God. He's a mean God. He destroyed the whole world, except for eight people. But then there's an explanation as to why that happened, Genesis 6. The significance of the rainbow is lost apart from Genesis 9. And that's a spectacular thing. Whenever you see a rainbow, it's, it's, it's cool. I think they're cool. But that's how most people think, and that's about as far as it goes. That's cool. Especially when you see a double one, right? <laughs> but but it's more than that. This is this is this is the uh, this is the seal of the covenant that God has with man. For from men from that point forward through today, that God is 
binding himself to certain principles, and he's binding us to certain principles as well. Okay, and without that, it's just it's just a colorful prism in the sky. The significance of the defeat of Sennacherib is lost apart from the explanation as to the angel of the Lord coming down and killing 175,000 of them. The significance of Christ's death and resurrection, the most spectacular of all miracles. They're lost apart from the New Testament. I mean, remember what 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 happened when 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 people found out that Jesus had been risen from the dead? Well, they made up stories that they knew were true, were new. They knew were false, but they couldn't have these this miracle of resurrection being perpetuated, and so they they made up a story and convinced themselves that the story was true. Some things never change. Yep. Yep. And, and which which points to this principle here. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. It's a fascinating verse. I think it's a, an important one for us. Uh, tells us a little bit about uh, uh, the, the idea of miracles and such today. God doesn't just do miracles willy-nilly. The only time he will do miracles is if he explains them. Okay? Uh, with, with some sort of a uh, official explanation. The sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. So, uh, so these these so, these so these miraculous events, spectacular proof of the existence of God, but very few people see them. In fact, none. That's our last point. None do today. It's unlikely that any mighty acts or miracles are occurring today. If they are, they do not seem to be a major plank in God's self-revelation. Okay? So, uh, great proof of the existence of God, but they're, they're not in existence today. The lives of God's people. I hesitate to put this one in there because I don't know that this is necessarily revelatory. Probably a little unfair to say that. But, nonetheless, we have these passages that speak to the fact that Believers are the light of the world. Believers are a letter of Christ known and read of all men. So there's a sense in which people know God by seeing us in a way that they don't see God by simply seeing man in God's image. So we are people who are being perfected in the image of Christ. We should give a clearer testimony of who God is than just the average person. But as we all know, the same limitation is there. We don't always represent God or Christ as well as we ought to. Hopefully we do it better than ordinary uh, un- unbelievers who are in the image of God. Nonetheless, we all know that we don't do that perfectly. Which brings us then to the last two, which we're not going to be able to deal with tonight. Uh, but the last two, the most important, are the ones that are Jesus Christ and the Bible. And we're going to see if we can and tease some of that out and explain why, uh, even though Christ is the greatest, according to Hebrews 1, uh, for us, uh, the greatest revelatory source of knowledge about God is the Bible. So uh, we'll come, come back next week and pick it up there.